After speaking to friends about her experience with the death of her father, Patsy Bingham soon realized that she had experienced something rare, but truly wonderful. The death of a loved one, which brought joy rather than pain and emotional anxiety. Soon after, Patsy went about getting training to begin her new business, End of Life Angels. Patsy's approach is compassionate and thoughtful, whilst her business background allows her to get straight to the heart of what it is her clients need and what still needs to be planned during that time. Patsy believes that everyone, especially the dying, should have their opportunity to be heard and have their wishes followed during the final chapter of their life. Patsy is determined that you and those you love should cherish the experience they have at this incredibly important time. Welcome to the Rare Conversations podcast. I'm Leonie Milano, and I chat with creative entrepreneurs and business owners around the world about what it takes to start, sustain, scale, and sell a business. We talk about real-life scenarios to help you understand the path before you, to inspire your journey. I transitioned from working in film, TV, and global events to working with creative entrepreneurs through mindset coaching and mentoring. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs embrace the journey, understand themselves better, accelerate their growth, and get the most out of life, making sure they have a hell of a lot of fun along the way. Thank you for joining me. I was so fascinated with your new career when I found out about it as an end-of-life angel. And I've also spoken to people telling them that I was going to be interviewing you. The other term, death doula, can sound quite confronting and nobody knew what it was. I think this is a really, really interesting career. I think it's a very necessary one, especially after COVID. Well, everything is still going, isn't it, everywhere. Can you tell me how you got into this career? Sure. Well, um, I mean, COVID changed the lives of a lot of people around the world. And as I was actually at the time that COVID really rolled through Australia, I was working for a multinational event organisation. So, of course, our work virtually entirely dried up, um, which meant that I was in need of a new job. And at that time, following 20 years, 20-odd years in the event industry, I felt that it was time for a big change. And almost within a month of that, of me being made redundant, uh, my father suffered a brain bleed and was rushed to hospital and was that his, the prognosis was that his life would be ending very soon. Um, so my sister and I, both of whom live in Australia, uh, managed to apply for a compassionate visa um, to get through the international border crossing from Australia to New Zealand and um, were able to get to dad's bedside. We brought him home from hospital and he, we had four days with him before he died on the 1st of June last year. And while the experience of having someone in the home to die is not a new one for me, um, I come from a Maori cultural background and that is a culture where death is very much part of life. And so the family tend to gather around the person who's dying and stay with them until, they, until the life leaves their body. And then we, we effectively keep that person at home for several, 
several days, up to a week, whereby to enable um, distant family members to be able to travel to the person and sit with them and pay their last respects. So that is, that's the way it has always operated in, in my culture. And, and so, you know, Dad's death was no different to me. But when I returned to Australia, when I was, people were ringing me to express this, you know, their pass on their condolences following Dad's death. And I spoke so positively of the experience that they were, you know, surprised and a bit bewildered <laughs> um, that it could be a, a, an experience that had a lot of joy along with the sorrow and grief. And Dad was almost 91, so it was not like his he was dying at a very young age or, or anything like that. So, And then I spoke to a, a friend who was a birth doula, and she said, when I explained how everything went for us as a family, she said, oh, my God, you've just done an end-of-life doula job on your dad. And I was like, oh, like, what's that? So 18, 18 months ago myself, I'd never heard of what a doula is despite um, some of the things that a doula does we were already doing as a family because it was a cultural belief and a way of respecting a person when they are in the final stages of their earthly journey. But then when, you know, she told me there's an actual job, I thought, oh, great, here's my new career. So I looked into it, found a training course, and which I completed and really felt 100% that this was a calling for me, not just a career change, that I, I feel very much called to this type of work and this type of role which is effectively to support family and the dying in the final stages of their life in order to be able to help families in particular um, bring their people home and allow them to have that sort of compassion. COVID has meant that hospitals are not, you know, in some cases, in the case of my, my most recent client, she'd had a catastrophic stroke. Her life was going to end. and her family were unable to visit her. So the only alternative they had was to remove her from the hospital and re remove that restriction. Um, the hospital weren't very encouraging about them bringing her home. They were in more inclined to say that the family wouldn't be able to cope with what needed to happen. But that is primarily what a doula's role is, is to help them to enable that process of, having their cherished loved one with them in for every moment of every hour of every day that that person has left. So it's an incredibly rewarding job. I've never, I honestly 100% would never have thought that this is what I was going to end up as. Uh, no, it was, well, I came back to New Zealand for dad's death, um, but I am based in the Southern Highlands of Australia. And the reality is, it doesn't matter where I'm based. If someone needs help and I can get to them, then my location is really not, uh, my, I don't need to have a fixed location. And in the majority of cases, if a family want their person to die at home, then you go to them, you go to their home. And, and statistically speaking, in Australia, like it's estimated that 70 to 80% of people want to die at home, but only 50 14, 14 to 15% actually managed to achieve that goal. And so 
Palliative Care Australia and other organisations like that are looking to the doula network to see whether or not there are ways that we can actually support increasing this percentage back up to where it should be because not only will it give people a better end-of-life experience, but the hospitals, all of our baby boomers are all moving through towards their end-of-life stage. So our hospital infrastructure cannot support people who are about to move through over the the course of the next 20 years. The hospital infrastructure is not there. So it's really important that people have conversations with their families about what they would like to not only prepare their families because as in the case of my most recent client, there were three adult children and multiple grandchildren, you know, that ranged in age from two up into 17. And they just didn't know what to expect. And so that was my role. I, I basically, I took, you know, I went through all of the medical paperwork. I understood what her, her illness was and how it was going to progress for her and what was then likely to happen to her physically so that her family understood the changes that were going to take place in her so that they could prepare themselves for those changes. Some of some components and sometimes the final moments of someone's life can be quite confronting because their breathing changes considerably. But I always assure my clients that if they at any time feel that it's too much for them to cope with, that they are welcome to leave the room because I will always stay. I will stay with their person. Their person will not be alone. And for some people, it is a little too much. But the whole role of the doula is to support them, help them understand exactly what's going on so that they understand and realise that their person's not actually in any pain or they are just simply, their their body's going through its final stages of life. Mm, Depending on what their situation is, I guess, as well. This is a topic that is not spoken about that much. It is also a very scary topic and the amount of fear that is around it. Also, how society portrays death. It's so lovely that you say that about the Maori culture, the ceremonial gathering before somebody is departing. That's also fascinating because there's so many different cultures that have different things. You know, in Muslim culture, they bury them as soon as possible. So to keep the body there for like a week after, when I think about, I don't know about the body's decomposing state and having that around for that period of time. Every culture is different. Um, And it's really Western culture that the one that most of us have grown up in, like in Australia, New Zealand, like the, the end of life process has become very medicalized. Now, a week is a very long time in anyone's lifetime and decomposition starts as soon as the last breath is, ex- is exhaled. So you really, from a doula's perspective, first of all, you want to re- um, recognize and support and respect the person who's dying's wishes what they would like. Secondly, you need to also look at what the legal requirements are for the location. For example, New South Wales, you can keep a body at home for five days, uh, but you need to have cooling plates in place. So you need to have a means of keeping the body. Um, it's basically a, a... Oh, cooling. It's almost like, yeah, it's like a reverse electric blanket. It cools you. And 
So basically you put a cooling the, the person's um, body on a cooling plate. Wow, I would never keep thought of this. At temperature, then you are legally allowed to keep that person at home for five days. I think it depends on the family's situation. Like keeping someone at home for a week would be, even in my opinion, probably a little excessive. But if that's what the time frame that was needed in order for very important family members, perhaps children, perhaps parents, um, to be able to get to the body of that person, um, to say they're well, that would be the only scenario I would think that you would extend it that long. Most of the time, in most cases, culture, it's, it's three days because that's generally not only time for family to come, but it's also enough time for each individual who has been there at that death process to just allow the death to settle with them. Um, there's no rush and it's really, it's your time. It's your time to come become accustomed to the idea that they are, they have gone, their journey has ended. And um, in the case of my dad, we kept him home for one and a half days. That was long enough for us. We then had, he was picked up directly from home. We coffined him ourselves at home. We did all of his post-death aftercare at home. Um, and it was just done by his children. And as well. Right. And it's, so it's really just a, a period of time to ensure that people get that opportunity to say goodbye. Although in COVID, you know, especially in, you know, my situation when my mother passed in August last year, there were no flights back home. So I actually didn't get to go home and the church had a technical glitch. So I was up at 5 a.m. for the service and I thought there was a problem with my internet. They said it's fine. And I could have... I could have had a literal meltdown. I mean, it was extremely stressful and I haven't even been home yet. I still, I think there's a part of me that thinks if I don't go back, she, she's still there. So that's still something for me to deal with. But at the time I had been doing a lot of studies around human behavior and really how we hang on to things and just well, one of the things I was doing, and I have Jacqueline Novogratz from Acumen to thank for this time that I had with my mother on the phone as a part of a course I was doing with her, The Path to Moral Leadership. We had to figure out the details of the, the origin of our name. And my name was, came from my grandmother. And I'd actually called my mother and I said, can you tell me the story about my name. And we'd had one of the longest conversations we had had in years, actually. And she was telling me about when my grandmother came to the hospital and she was telling her that she'd named me after her. And it was really a very beautiful moment. And I, I wouldn't have had that if I wasn't doing that course. Also, I thought, I can't actually change this situation. I can't change the fact it wasn't just me. Thousands of people could not get to people. And when I first heard about it, I thought that must be so truly horrible. Then when it happened to me, I really understood the extent of what that meant and what that felt like. And I don't think if you're not in that situation, you just wouldn't be able to comprehend what that's like. And I had this feeling of, I can't change what's happened, 
but I have what's inside of me in terms of memories and connection that we get to carry on with us forever. And it is death in our society is so confronting. It's so scary. And that makes me think when you talk about gathering around, what is that, what is that fear made up of? I think the fear ends up being a mix of regret and a lot of guilt. So much goes on in that thing that is called fear. I think everything gets bundled up into that. You know, at the time I had joined a group that is run by David Kessler, who is one of the world's foremost grief experts. And that was so helpful for me to be in that group because I was around people that knew what that feeling was. Because if you haven't had that feeling of loss, and I wouldn't wish that on anybody, it is, you can't even really describe it. It's a lot. And a friend of mine, his mother had passed this year and he had sent me a message and he said, he said, I wasn't there for you how I should have been. And I didn't realize it would be like this. And I said, there is no way that you will ever understand or anyone will ever understand the enormity of what that is to lose somebody. If you have not experienced that, it is, you just cannot fathom. So when people say, oh, they had a good life. Oh, you should be over it by now. All these things. And I don't think people mean that in a bad way, but it comes out. They just don't know. They don't know. They don't understand the situation, but it also, it, it's so hard. So being in this group with these people, it was very, very helpful. People say, oh, just be strong, which again is like suppressing, suppress those emotions because it's going to make, make us feel too uncomfortable. And, and this is why people explode with emotions. You know, it was great at the time, but I also noticed there were people in the group who had had people pass maybe 10 years ago. And for me, that was a lot. And when I saw that, it served its purpose. And I thought I would not want to bury myself in grief for the rest of my life. But I think some people hang on to that. I want to remember my mother as I want to remember her. How would, how do you describe that? I think, I think the thing is, is that a lot of people do approach grief can be incredibly overwhelming. And, and you're right. People do say the wrong things because they don't know what to say. Um, but they're also very uncomfortable with it. Exactly. The but feelings. The, the reality is, is that grief, you know, when you, when you first experience your grief, it's like a ball like this and your li- it completely fills your life. And people presume that over time that ball's going to get smaller. But what happens is that ball doesn't get smaller. Your life gets bigger. Your life grows larger around it and you learn how to accommodate it. You, ne- you learn how to bring it out when you need to have a cry, for example. But there are so many ways that we can keep our people alive so that we don't have to do that wallowing in grief. Say your mum's name and play a song she loves. That brings her back to life. And it is, death is very final. You don't get to have that person to share these continued memories with and to tell, you know, to phone up and go, oh, this is what happened to me today. But you still can. 
because, but it, it's just they're not there to reciprocate your comments, but you can talk to them in the same way as you used to. And grief, I've heard grief described beautifully as love that has nowhere to go, which is true. It's because it's like you feel this pain because you can't share things with them anymore, but you can still share things with them by much in, this, in, in a similar way as with the Maori culture, there are a lot of rituals are created and processed and practiced. You can create rituals for your mum a special place that you will then create a ritual of perhaps every birthday. Something that you'll do will create a ritual which is a loving, beautiful ritual that you can look forward to rather than constantly looking. So it's not dread, right? The heaviness of the emotion. Every time there's a Mother's Day. I'm, of course, because of the work that I do, involved with a number of different grief podcasts, groups where people share things. You know, five things I wish I'd known before my person died. And and it's fascinating how many different ways grief manifests itself. But universally, love brings you people back. We need to educate people around how to support people who've lost someone. Like you said before, they go, oh, well, it's gosh, it's been a year now. Surely you're getting over it. Where it's really it's not- hard to, it, it's just so difficult to to fathom it. Andrew Garfield, when he was on the Stephen Colbert, like, the Lake Show, he had said, "Grief is all the unexpressed love," which was so beautiful when he was talking about his mother passing. And it's so beautiful, isn't it? When you think that's really what it is. Amazing. But the thing too, though, that I find interesting is. The more I talk to people about what I do now, because people are fascinated, they, they want to know why I'm doing it, most importantly. And, and the answer to that is to help people have the best experience in a time of unimaginable grief and sorrow. And, but there can be good things can come out of it. And it's, you know, when people do ask me, it's like, what should I say? My best friend's mother's just died. What should I say? I don't know what to say. And, and, you know, people often stay away because they don't know what to say. And it's like can be as simple as tell me about your person. Tell me the thing that, you know, to allow that person who's grieving to express their love, to tell you a story about that person. Or, you know, you can say to them if they start to cry or something like that, which often is when people like go, now I'm really not knowing how to deal with it. It's just like, oh, look, they're only tears. Which should be in cut. Yes, exactly. I don't know. I put the jug on and I'll make you a nice cuppa and you can tell me how you're feeling. Allow people to, you know, express how they're feeling because grief, as you would have experienced yourself, you have incredible highs, incredible lows. One thing that is consistent that I hear in this world is that it's just that you know that that's never going to change, that the fact that that person's gone is never going to change. It can fill people with despair. But the most important thing you can do is honour that person by playing their music, acting out in your life the way that they exhibit the same traits as them, you know, demonstrate love and respect for them in a different way. And it's so nice to... Re- get that reframe because it's almost when I hear you talk about that, it's like, oh, there is a different way to do it. We don't have to cling on to this thing. Like, let's just breathe through it and celebrate it and not turn it into this devastating thing. Yes, it's devastating. It, it's, it's, um, 
I, I don't know. It comes down to how do how do we avoid that? We have the the conversations with the people that mean the most to us. We we make the most out of our life, so it doesn't have to be that. That's right, and we make sure that oftentimes, particularly when people are getting up in their seventies and eighties. They start developing a real fear of death that is not necessarily related to their age. It's more related to the fact that they start thinking, what will happen with with that? Like, if I go first, what will happen to my partner? What about the dog? What about the children? Who's If they, instead of having those fears, if they actually sat down with their loved ones and said, right, okay, these are the things I'm worried about, I want you to understand how important it is for me that that if I have a stroke and can't speak, that I want to be brought here. I need you to understand how important that is to me. Or I need you to make sure that you rehome my dog. Like I want my dog on the bed with me in my final hours because I can't tell you how many people will go and because they think it needs to be a sterile zone, go and shoo, 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 shoo the animals. It's like, no, 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 no. These people, this, dog, this animal and this person have a relationship that is, is a love relationship and it's important that they be allowed to share those moments. And unless you articulate what it is that's going to make a difference to you in days of your life, if you don't tell your family and the people around you, they will always then have to deal with the situation of your end of life going, does he want to be at home? Does he want to be in hospital? What does he, she want that people can do as they, as they approach their end of their life, that can actually give them a lot of joy. For example, create legacy projects. They might get a, a, a diagnosis that says you've probably got about two years. So they might want to use that two years rather than going, oh, my God, I'm going to die, to going, right, I've got two years to create the legacy that I want for my children. I might write a book. I might document something. I might tick a few things off my bucket list. The whole point of what the doula world is doing and what many organisations around the world, like the Groundswell Project, the Glass Table in the US, there's a lot of organisations that are trying to encourage people to just start talking. Make death not a scary word. Death is just a plan for every other life stage except death. It's like you're, you're having a baby, then the baby's christened, then, the, you know, there's all sorts of a whole raft of religious things. That Depending on what religion, yeah, what happens with each fa- each different culture. Then there might be marriage, then there will be, could be divorce, then there's children, then there's being a grandparent. And there's a certain amount of planning that is done for each of those stages. And the only thing stage we don't plan for is actually making sure that we can have the best end stage as possible. And that involves telling people what you want. Yeah. And also, you know, people start talking about it, it then becomes less scary because it's like, oh, I didn't know mum wanted to die at home. Or mum might go, I don't want to be a burden on anyone. I want you to take me to the hospital. And that gives you an opportunity as a child or a sibling or whatever to say, Mum, I would love to care for you. So that mum, oh, I'm going to remove that fear of being a burden to my children because my children are now telling me I'm not going to be a burden. And it enables people to get to be really honest about what it is that will make them happy. And the very high majority of cases, and when you're in your final days of life, you lose your ability to communicate. You can't speak anymore. And 
So but you, you can still you are, hear what's going on around you. Here you can still, in most cases, you can still smell. But it is thought that the hearing is the last sense to go. So, you know, as doulas, we encourage the people who are sitting around the bed to tell stories, to tell that, express their love for that person so that whether they're conscious or not, if they can still hear, all they're hearing is the love of their family. And to know that you've done that to your, for your person when they finally do take their last breath, you know, I mean, that's how I felt after Dad died because it was like I know 100% we gave him what he wanted in this house that he, that he built and for us to be it's the most important thing, isn't it? But we knew that. We knew what he wanted because we had asked him a couple of years prior. And it was, I wasn't even on my end-of-life journey then, but I, I felt strongly enough because of the, the health and stage of my parents that I really wanted to be sure that I knew exactly what they wanted because my father was an atheist and my mother was a Catholic and or is a Catholic. And I worried that if dad had a really bad fall or something happened to him, that mum would try and keep him alive beyond when dad would have liked. And so that's why I had those conversations with them several years prior to his death. And I'm so grateful that we did because we knew then that dad wanted to be here and he wanted to be cremated. He didn't want a funeral. He just wanted to go straight from home to the crematorium, which is what we did with him. And that's and so interesting that you say you had these conversations with him beforehand, because I remember my mother would bring something up in recent years talking about, well, when I've gone and I said, well, don't talk about that. You're still here. So that was me saying, now that, now that I'm having this conversation with you, I probably would have reframed it because in the end, we can't control that. And that was me with my own fear of that happening. Hey, everyone. I'm excited to jump in here and let you know about my upcoming program for 2022. People say knowledge is power, but that's not entirely true. If you do nothing with that knowledge, it's worthless. If you implement it, you become unstoppable. Creating your own business takes work, commitment, dedication to getting tasks done, working through the frustrations when you realize it's more than you thought and you feel like you're always on the verge of quitting. The easy thing to do is give up but that just perpetuates a cycle because when there is something you can't stop thinking about, something that you really want to create, you'll never be able to shake it. What we're not taught in school is how our brain actually works. It is so hardwired with our individual beliefs based on our own life experiences that it takes the utmost awareness to know what you need to do differently to achieve your goals. This is the single biggest thing that can be the deciding factor on how well you live your life. When you're starting a new business, there are stages you need to go through. Analysis, planning, testing, strategizing, taking action in tandem with accountability and support, etc. This is what I help my clients with. In my 10-week program, I'll take you from being stuck and not knowing how to grow to getting clarity and confidence that will get you to the next level. We'll make sure your niche target market offer and strategy is solid by implementing systems and a step-by-step -step action plan to strengthen your foundation that will allow you to grow faster than you could have imagined. You'll gain clarity and confidence with every step, not ever having to return to where you were ever again. 
I work with a limited number of clients at any time, and to really help you, it needs to be a mutually beneficial fit. This is for someone serious about their growth, for someone who's tired of just getting by to having a healthy business that actually makes money. If this sounds like something you're interested in, send me an email to hello at leonimilano.com. That's L-E-O-N-I-M-I-L-A-N-O.com with the word apply and we can jump on a call to see if this works. If you can tell me one thing that you got out of this episode, I'll add an exclusive bonus. Now let's get back to the episode. And imagine that different conversation. If you actually asked people, whilst it might seem a little weird, asking them, getting their opinion so they're heard. And it, it's almost, you know, I, you hear of some people, they have entire celebrations because that's how they wanted to have it. Their, their friends have a big party. And I love that kind of thing. The grief can well, be there are so things, heavy. You know, yeah. Well, I mean, people now have plan and, and have living funerals. If they know that they're in their final, you know, because a lot of the time. I've never heard of that. Well, people, a lot of, in a lot of cases, it's like particularly if, if you've got an old person with a terminal disease, they pretty much call the shots because they, they, they know, they can feel the life kind of eking out of them. And I met with one woman who was a very, she was a retired registered nurse and she had worked in palliative care extensively. So she knew what was coming her way. And she knew how she wanted to deal with it, but she also knew that she didn't really want everyone finding out about that she was sick and then starting to get all fake grief is what she called it. So instead, she decided to have a party. She didn't want anyone coming in, expressing this fake grief to her. Um, she wanted to be able to tell everyone exactly what was going on. This is what's happening. This is when I'm going to die and this is what I want you all to do. And so she had a party and she invited them all and she announced at the party that she was, got, she was dying, but she wanted to see everyone in a really joyous environment so that they could actually say goodbye to her. And so, I mean, a lot of the guests were a bit bewildered, but... Um, they yes, I think that they, would have been... <laughs> and yeah. That would have been... You know, as they were leaving, they were, and they were hugging her, knowing... And she was, like, able to go, I have loved you. Thank you so much for the, the input you've had in my life and I love you. And it gives them an opportunity to know that she heard them when they told her they loved her, you know. And then, you know, three months later she dies. They can all kind of go, she knew I loved her. Like, it changes the grief. You know, you can still feel the sadness that that person's gone, but you can also feel a level of joy because you were part of, there's, there's a lot of different approaches to how people are doing death now. I mean, particularly, you know, being living in Australia, there, it's, it, there's an interesting whole other tangle of laws around burying people on country and being able to actually return them to their, their ceremonial burial grounds. But also for people like, I mean, another lady who she had 100 acres and she was like, this is my farm, this is my land, this is where I want to be buried. And... So you have to go through council. You can get a license. You have to have over five hectares. But she got what she wanted. But basically, council just makes sure there's no waterways running through where they're going to bury the person. But aside from that, you can do that. And it's just like, 
unless people start talking openly and frankly about death and dying, people don't know that they have that option available to them. It's, there are so many different ways to, uh, to support families who are about to lose someone that you can make sure that that experience is as positive as it can possibly be. It's definitely a, a different way of approaching it. And I really like that idea of people being heard and also people, you know, knowing that they really love them. I think they do underneath, but I think with life, there's so much that happens that gets in the way. And in the end, it's a lot. And, and they can get a lot of the time when there, is, when there are arguments and, and, you know, challenges to wills and things like that after a death is because they didn't talk about it beforehand. Because if it was, you know, there are so many situations where, and, and, and you know, it's all about that. that building because that no bed. one thinks about it. No one, no one thinks about this really. Well, this, this is what doulas are here to help with. Generally, there, I think there are families that do. There are, you know, especially if there are a lot of assets in the family, they are definitely talking about the generational changes. And I think the thing that, that's really important is that, and, and you said it just a moment ago, is that people are heard, that their wishes can be considered. Now, it's not going to happen in all cases, like you might have the best laid plans for someone to come and die at home and then something might occur, all of a sudden their pain levels are through the roof and unmanageable at home. You might then have to reconsider that plan. But what is the most important thing to me and the most important part of the role that the doula plays is that we champion that person and, and their wishes and even if family do start going, oh, I think this should happen, it's very easy for me to then walk them out of the room and go, now, pretty sure all three of you were here and heard the fact that this, she does not want that to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm here telling you I do not want you to do that because I am her, I am her champion. And, you know, they might still say, we're going to override you anyway, but... I don't know that I could do, I don't know about the, the having them at home for me. That is a lot. And I do remember, um, isn't there something that has to be disclosed when uh, people are buying property, uh, whether somebody has died in the property? I, I don't believe there's a de- an, uh, just a standard death disclosure um, that would be required. I think if there was a murder, I think there might be some sort of something recently about um, people who had moved, who were about to buy a house and then discovered that there was a, a whole family was murdered in, in the house. That is, I think, a real estate requirement disclosure. But someone who has just died at home, when it's, and I, and I think probably the, the most important scenario or, or kind of terminology you'd need to consider there is, is it an expected death? And because if it's not an expected death, if the person hasn't been seen by a doctor in the previous three months, it's classed by law in most countries as an unexpected death and the police will be involved because you have to report the person as dead. They could be 95. But if they haven't seen a doctor for a year because they're fighting fit or, you know, they just haven't been to the doctor, the coroner will classify it as an unexpected death because that person was showing no signs of ill health. In yeah, the- my... My brother passed away um, some years back and I had found him. 
he had grown up with having a brain tumor and he had had operations throughout his life. But at that time, he seemed okay. He seemed fine. You know, he wasn't, he hadn't just had a major operation or anything. And he'd actually had a fall from having an epileptic fit, which was very rare. So that was really, you know, he'd left a a message on my voicemail. And then when I tried to call, and that was at like four in the morning. And when I tried to call him and he didn't answer when I'd woken up and when I got there. So for me to, firstly, it was so confronting to see because I thought he was going to get up. And I thought, this is really not a very good joke at all. And when he stayed there, I went from being very quiet to kind of hysterical. And it was, yeah, and it was the weirdest feeling when I called the ambulance they asked what the address was. Do you think I could tell them? I, it went completely out of my head. Imagine that. But I, was, I, I remember the feeling of literally shaking, walking, inching over, and then putting my hand on his cheek and it was cold and it was, it was I don't even know, that whole day, that whole period to get through that. I, was, I went to counseling. I think it was every week, every fortnight for like a good six months. It was such a bizarre experience. And I mean, you know, loads of people have had a lot of really confronting experiences around death. I know that for sure. So what in in that was so scary? This was like my first. And if I try to think of what was the scary part of it, does that make sense? Well, I think, I mean, the scary part is like, you know, you, you process so many emotions, you would have felt anger at him like what how could you do this to me how could you leave me and Mm. then it's like it was every possible emotion in one go oh my god I've now got to tell mum and dad I've got to now tell other family members what's going to happen and because I'm sure the the ambulance would have turned up and then the police would have come right behind them is that what happened yeah I'm trying to remember the uh uh, the uh I can't I can't even remember generally speaking and you know, like you say, he hadn't been unwell. So when the ambulance come and find a young person, they're going to go unexpected death, in come the detectives. Um, just to make sure that, like, you know, I mean, you might have had, you know, you might have murdered him. They don't know. And, you know, I, I had a, a family situation recently where an aunt and uncle were sitting watching TV. The auntie said, oh, you know, just not feeling that right. I feel like I've got a bit of a sore throat. And he said, oh, I'll go pop in and make you a limb sip. So he popped into the kitchen, put the kettle on, came back, she was dead on the floor. And so when the ambulance came, they called the police because they were like, what's happened here? And they were like, she's as fit as a fiddle. Hasn't been to the doctor for six months. So they said, well, now we're going to have to, you know, the police came. And, and, of course, there's a man grieving. He's just lost his wife of 65 years. And the police are interviewing him in case... Wait, they were, but they were very old, right? They were they were elderly. Well, still unexpected, and he might have poisoned her. You know, there's also they just don't know. So it's really important that you've got, you know, that you talk to people about what it is you want. That everyone is familiar. That they understand what step, you know, who who that first call should be made to by changing our attitude and trying to, you know, get rid of our fear of death and rather. Th- consider it a part of life which is what it is well that was a completely different experience 
both of these experiences. I mean, my father actually passed away when I was little. Well, I think I was like 10 or 11. The differences, this is why it's so, I'm trying to put my finger on what the fear part of it is, because I had a really close relationship with my brother. I think more than the fear, it was this, I remember being in such a You know, it's like such a surreal thing. It's almost like all this stuff is happening around you. All these people are gathering that you haven't seen and you just don't know what's going on. I I even went into all the people were around and I even went into my room to call him. I was like, where is he? All these people are here. Where is he? Like the one person that I would be hanging out with. I'm like, where is he? That's what, how crazy it was for me, for my brain. I called his phone and he had a voice mail thing on his phone at the time. And it was, you. it is so crazy. It's so crazy to go through that experience. It changed not so much when my father died, because that was a, when I was young and, and I'm sure it ha- has a massive impact when you're young, but it, again, that processing of something like that, if you, I know loads of people who have lost their parents when they were young. And it, I remember at the time thinking, you know, there's that saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I was like, well, if this, I had this feeling inside of me and I don't know how else to describe it, except it felt like this black, is like almost like a tree trunk thing inside your body, like this black thing stuck inside your body. I, I had that visual of that. That's what this feels like. I was so overtaken and I literally thought I have to have this now forever, but it has changed. And I haven't, you know, go- definitely having the going to therapy saved me hugely to, to manage, but it's not something that you just get over quickly. You need to have that time. And it's such a weird thing that suppressing of emotion. It, I had such a hard time with that. For six months, I couldn't speak his name without being in a torrent of tears. I went out for dinner. I had a couple of girlfriends. They're like, let's go out for dinner. And it happened to be at one of the last places that I had had dinner with my brother. And I remember when we were there, we did nothing but laugh the whole night. And we completely forgot that they had forgotten to send out the last food order that we'd had in our meal. We were that engrossed in our conversation and laughing. And, you know, I remember thinking about it and I was there with the girls and I was literally tears falling down the whole, through the whole dinner. And, and I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. They said, you know what? We don't care. Do whatever you want. And the fact that they allowed that was such a relief. That's the, that's the right support. You know, allowing it was the right support. Allowing, offering you their company and telling you that they are not ashamed of the fact that you've probably got snot running down your face. It's like that's what true friendship and loyalty and support looks like. It could be sitting silently next to someone while, while they cry. or I think it was it, just tears. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm, I'm sure. But, but you're, you know, through saying that, they're saying, we've got your back. Yeah, it's it was like, really nice. We've got you. And, you know, we want you to be with us. And if crying is part of you being with us, well, we'll take that. Yeah, because apart from that, you know, you don't want to go out anywhere because everything reminds you of it. And it's a lot. And Yeah. And for some people, they won't. I mean, I, I personally, when I had a very close uncle die, 
Um, I didn't go out anywhere for three months. Refused, refused, cried every day. One day this friend of mine said, come on, we're just going to go down to the pub down the road. We're going to just walk down there and we're going to walk back. And I eventually went and we had a great night. And when I got home, I felt a little bit better. And, you know, I felt like, okay, maybe tomorrow. You can do this, yeah. I'll feel even a little bit better again. And it's and not something to be forced though either. You, you oh. can't actually force it. If you're suppressing it, it is still going to be there. You'll break it some other time and it may be at a time when you actually shouldn't be breaking or like, you know, you're too, it, it puts you into a position where you might crack your own vulnerability later at a time when you need to be strong, like even for a child or for another parent or another sibling, but you need to, it's very important that we address self-care around grief and and the fact that that looks like just what you said. It can take three months. It could take 10 years. Some people never get over the death of someone they love, but they learn to live with it. They learn and to live with it. I also think, though, that some people are so engrossed in the overwhelming sadness that envelops them. And I don't think anybody who has passed would ever want anybody to live their life that way. I 100% agree with you. Because that's tragic for me. People who can't, that their grief becomes who they are. We need to find another way to get to those people so that they can still see some joy and that they can have some sort of experience of happiness. And that's what grief management and good grief management is all about, is allowing people to, to experience their grief, process it, but still be able to return to life at the end of it. Yeah. And it's you know, a, do you, you know, I think their identity is tied up with that person. I think also, I, I mean, I think this happens with marriage as well. When a marriage ends, that can be quite devastating, especially if that's a part of your identity. You could lose your job and, and, and feel the same sense of loss and grief because, you know, grief can be associated with anything that you lose. Identity is a big part of that. And sometimes, you know, the job that we have and the the house that we live in and we think that defines the person who we are and it's not until you actually lose something like a person between the value of a possession and the value of heartfelt love and and you know that and real human connection it's just like you know a lot of people get about that on their as they clamber up on their way up to the top of the financial heap or wherever it is they're determined to head. And and then all of a sudden they'll go, oh, okay, I'm, I'm really rich, but I have no relationship with my children. I have no relationship with my partner um, because I never had time for them. And now I find myself in my final stage of life and what have I actually really got? Mm. And that's quite interesting. Um, that reminds me of the Bronnie Ware book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And I, I'll go through them because just what you said, I think we get swept up in the treadmill of life and we forget to think of things. So the first one was, I wish I'd had the courage to live life true to myself, not what others expected of me. I think that's huge. It's also difficult if you're trying to do something and you're changing and people are like, whoa, 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 hang on. That whole tribal, where yeah, we originate from, you know, we're tribal and, and we have that. And it's very difficult to go off and do what you want. And again, being caught in the identity of someone else, I think a lot of people forget who they are. And, and what's uh, important. Yeah. And the second one is, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. 
some people might think, well, we have to because that's what we have to do. And, and again, I think that one is, I mean, I don't think there's a work-life balance, but I also think some people probably get addicted to work in that if they don't have that, they'll fall apart. They, you know, they, they need to have that thing. The third one is I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Again, I think that's something that, you know, in society, we're not encouraged to express our feelings. If someone tries to speak up about something they believe about from a very authentic place and then they get crushed for it. Of course, people aren't going to speak up. That's sad. The fourth one, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And the fifth one, I wish I had let myself be happier. And that is a really interesting one. Um, there is the book, The Big Leap. And he is so brilliant talking about we put a cap on our happiness of how happy we will allow ourselves. Gay Hendricks wrote the book. It's true. And if you actually look at that and say, could I be happy right now? Could I be happier? Could I allow myself to be happier and enjoy my life? You might start to hear all these objections come up in your head. But really, if you look at that, it's like, well, what if I did let myself be happier and enjoy my time here? And I think that would make death less terrifying. I agree, 100%. It's been so great to chat with you. It's been great to talk to you. I can't believe how much time has flown by. Yes. Now, how can people find you? Okay, so they can find me. I have a website, which is endoflifeangels.com.au. I've also got an Instagram account, um, Instagram is end of life angel as in singular as it's and i'm also you know as a as a registered doula in australia i'm listed with the australian doula college um i've got a facebook page i've got a group um where my people can privately join a group and just talk talk to me about what it is you know just about what their situation is and what are they afraid of so that i can perhaps you know i will generally speaking offer um, anyone who wants to engage with my business, a 15-minute free consultation to understand what their individual situation is and what their individual needs might look like. Um, and I will generally make a suggestion that then follow up and I would kind of outline how, based on that 15-minute discussion, how I think I could best support them. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Thank you, Patsy. It's been so lovely to chat to you. Thank you, Leonie. It has been a pleasure to chat to you too. You've just finished listening to an episode of Rare Conversations. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love for you to leave a review and share it with a friend who you think would be interested in this topic. And if you have a business question, please send it in to us. We may very well answer it in our next episode. So be sure to tag me on social media at Leonie Milano. The show notes and other information can be found at www.leonimilano.com. Thank you again for listening and we look forward to having you back with us again soon.